0: so I thought I'd start this part of the afternoon with a poem this is from David Wegener and it's called The Silence of the Stars he says when Lawrence Vanderpost one night in the Kalahari desert told the Bushmen he couldn't hear the stars singing they didn't believe him they looked at him half smiling they examined his face to see whether he was joking or deceiving them. Then, two of those small men who plant nothing, who have almost nothing to hunt, who live on almost nothing and with no one but themselves, led him away from the crackling thorn scrub fire and stood with him under the night sky and listened. One of them whispered, do you not hear them now? And Vander listened, not wanting to disbelieve, but had to answer, no. They walked him slowly like a sick man to the small dim circle of firelight and told him they were terribly sorry. And he felt even sorrier for himself and blamed his ancestors for their strange loss of hearing which was his loss now on some clear nights when nearby houses have turned off their televisions when the traffic dwindles when through streets are between sirens and the jets overhead are between crossings when the wind is hanging fire in the fir trees and the long-eared owl in the neighboring grove between calls is regarding his own darkness. I look at the stars again as I first did to school myself in the names of constellations and remember my first sense of their terrible distance. I can still hear what I thought at the edge of silence Were the inside jokes of my heartbeat, my arterial traffic, the sea above high sea of my inner ear, myself tunelessly humming. But now I know what they are. My fair share of the music of the spheres and clusters of ripening stars, of the songs from the throats of the old gods still tending even tone-deaf creatures Through their exiles in the desert. I could just stop there, right? (laughs) Who needs more than that? Hmm. So, a few years ago, I got, for a variety of reasons, interested in astronomy. I've sometimes thought it's my father's fault (laughs) because before he died he would sometimes say to me I used to dream that I could fly and I don't dream that anymore what do you think? (laughs) because he knew I'd done some dream work and I would say this or that but it was just so clear to me that he really missed those dreams when he would go flying most of us have had them some point in our lives and he really liked them so when he did finally die at the very ripe age of 92 and quite peacefully and willingly um, at some point after that I went to visit a planetarium in Hilo on the big island where we live some of the time and um, you know, those amazing images of galaxies and stars came up. There are so many of them now. And we're even maybe getting used to them, I don't know. But um, I wasn't used to them at that point. And um, I found myself weeping. And then I thought, maybe he flew out in the night, out into the stars kind of shook me at the time and I have no idea it's a nice image, I like it um, that's funny, right? that's funny <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting and as I began to pay attention to those images more and more because I was very caught by them at that point look at them I, I look at them almost every day that's the first thing I do when I go online I would, I've just been so touched by by them. What is this? What is this? What are we looking at? You know, what is it? Who am I? Who are you? Our Zen friends say, what was your face before you were born? Good question. You know, what is going on here? And I'm very much I resonate with um, the Dalai Lama when he says, "You know, if science proves that some concept is true and it goes against the Buddhist teachings, we have to change our Buddhist teachings. We can't be teaching something that's contrary to what we know is true. That you know, some things that we've held as truth can be challenged." Pretty interesting thought, actually. So, in the Buddha's teaching, one of the central teachings is that of the five aggregates. Form, feeling, and the sense of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, the feeling tone of things. Perception, mental formations, and consciousness. Consciousness. And the sense is that these are sometimes called the five heaps sometimes called the five baskets these are what you can um, divide your human experience into the feeling of form the pleasantness and unpleasantness of your experience the, the process of perception mental formations, and consciousness and out of these we create a sense of self so mental formations, you know, are the stories that arise and wrap around our experiences and create intentions and more actions and sometimes perpetuate the cycles of suffering. So we take these five dots and we connect them, just like those books that you used to have when you were a kid, you know, that had all the numbered dots in. And so, if you could imagine five dots somehow making a self, um, that's what we do and in the chants that the monks do almost every day there's one place, I can remember being on retreats with them and, and chanting this, I encourage you to try it where they chant form is not self feeling is not self perception is not self mental formations is not self or, or not self <coughs> consciousness is not self and it, that, that even the tone of the chanting has that kind of sound to it, and it's a little scary, it's like all that stuff isn't self what's what's going on what is this, you know they're they're not self and even when they're here they're impermanent so most of you have sat with me before, and you're very familiar with the image that I love to use of the Big Dipper the Big Dipper is a connect the dots image, right bunch of stars up there, they're not even close together. Okay. Some of them are hundreds and thousands of light years apart. Isn't that interesting? But, you know, we see them, and we from here, from our perspective here on this planet, we connect the dots and we go it's the Big Dipper, or the Bear, or whatever you want to call it but we say something It seems to be one of the more popular ones but you know, you do know this, right? Getting your your trusty spaceship go up there and you're, are you going to find the Big Dipper? No. There's no Big Dipper. There isn't. There isn't even, you know, wire connecting them or anything up there. It's just not there. So, But we've created a concept. Or you can go, as I did once, up to the Exploratorium in San Francisco. And someplace place tucked in there. I assume they still have it. It's been a long time. I There was a room with maps. And I looked at this map and I went, What? So in this map, on the top is the South Pole. And then there's Australia and New Zealand (laughs) and South America and Africa. And, you know, and way down at the bottom, you know, is New York and Canada and the North Pole. It was astounding. And then I thought, perfectly reasonable. Is the North Pole the top? We think it's the top, right? We've always seen it. How many maps have you seen in your lifetime? Probably a gazillion of them. And we look at it over and over again. And it's interesting to reflect on what the impact of always seeing the European nations in America as the top and everybody else lives as we like to say down under doesn't sound doesn't sound like a really you know high rent neighborhood down there <laughs> but <laughs> and i was very pleased to discover it. it's called the macarthur map of the world and when i a bit later visited down in new zealand they have maps like that down there cuz they like them right it suits their sense of who they are to have the South Pole be on top I even bought a tea towel that had the MacArthur map of the world on um, it. so we are so accustomed to our stories about what it is that we see this is a cup, this is a piece of paper this is a sweater, that's a cushion it's what it is, right? But you know, if you could see particles, protons, neutrons, quarks, all those things, would you see sweaters and cushions and floor? No. You would see dancing, energetic fields of particles all mixed up together. It's convenient. It's very, very helpful to be able to navigate time and space with names for certain collections of energetic events. But to assume that that is in some solid and concrete way what they are is a mistake. We are just as mysterious as those galaxies and those nebulae, And in fact, many of you have probably seen that Powers of Ten video that I think you can find on YouTube that goes Powers of Ten Bigger and powers of 10 smaller than where we are. And when you get out to the very large or down to the very small, guess what? Looks pretty similar, one to the other. So what's that? I don't know, it's amazing. And I have no idea why it is. But we get identified. Identification is the problem. Very, very easy to get so identified. And of course, the most identified place is who you are, right? I'm Mary Grace Orr. Well, obviously. <laughs> obviously. But it's really just a convenient way to name this bunch of aggregates. And it's very impermanent. It's like when there's a rock in the stream and the stream creates an eddy around it and this particular eddy eddy calls itself Mary Grace but one of these days something will happen to the rock or whatever it is that creates that eddy and it won't be anymore and the stream will go on and there will be no Mary Grace this is key to this place of wise view to begin to even entertain the idea that this might be so, to question your sense of identification with who and what it is that you are. That's funny. I thought I was Mary Grace. Huh. What happens if I'm not? It's a good question. So, here we are we're sitting in silence together some today and talking some sitting with our suffering with our bodies and knees and backs that hurt and and (coughs) we sit with whatever level of conviction or faith that you've developed is there we talked about that some this morning And, and maybe begin to entertain the notion that things aren't quite what we thought them to be and, and maybe we don't even know what they are and, and you know really beginning to look at the whole experience with uh, with some interest and curiosity like not knowing what it is one writer I found said this is an interesting planet it deserves all the attention you can give it and someone else see if I can find the other one where did my clothes go I know. I know they were here there's a theory which states that if ever anybody discovers exactly what the universe is for and why it is here it will instantly disappear and be replaced by something even more bizarre and inexplicable. There is another theory which states that this has already happened. (laughs) Being human is interesting. It deserves all the attention you can give it. We know at the very least, you know, we've all been reading in the papers, we've got all our friends up at the university who are working hard at trying to find other planetary systems, right? And they're finding some. And they're trying to find planets that are in what is known as the habitable zone, so just the right distance from their parent star. and, and But, you know, it's not like planets with living beings on them are a dime a dozen any way you cut it, conscious life is likely to be very, very, very rare in the cosmos. Probable, it's probable that we're not the only thing. But there might not be a lot of it. So it's very precious. Because what we are in some real way of understanding it is all of this evolution that's taken place from the of whatever supernova made the elements that are you is at least its current fruition is a being who has consciousness and can reflect on its own being it's not common it's very very sacred I think actually that we have that ability and we sit in this strange thing that we call now trying to be in it of course always one step out of it, it's not findable, it's enormous when you really begin to give your attention to it, it's timeless and that's where knowing is Ajahn Sumedho has a book that's called Now is the Knowing and he means now is knowing, knowing is always now it's not back there, and it's not ahead. It's the actual knowing is now. So over and over, the Buddha points us to this present moment. You know, the whole Satipatthana Sutta, the whole teaching on mindfulness, is about being here, just in this very present moment, penetrating your experience with your attention, trying to see what is the nature of it your breath and your body putting your attention there This the mind and the heart the flavor of your experience coming back because we don't seem to want to stay in the present moment a lot of the time we're always out there in the future or back there in the past getting ready for the next thing and we begin to notice that this mind has all kinds of flavors and it does all kinds of strange things But over and over again, we also notice that things are really impermanent, they're coming and going really fast. Where is our day long? I've been paying attention to it today. This is my last day long as the guiding teacher here at the Apostle Santa Cruz. When I come back in about a year, I'll be coming back as a visiting teacher, not as the guiding teacher. So this is it. I've done I don't know how many day long, dozens and dozens over the years. And it's going by inexorably, second by second by second. I can't stop it. And there are times, even now, when my mind skips out ahead. What am I going to do this evening? You know, what about tomorrow when the stepping down ceremony happens? And then I pull it back, and then I look at the clock. It's a minute after three o'clock, and I think, ah, it's almost gone, this very precious thing sit here, be with it, taste it you know, it's so interesting to see how we do that so impermanent and if I were to try to hold on to it that wouldn't work either right, then I'd really suffer because now it's two minutes after three o'clock, it's really going I can't hold on to it one minute after another So the Buddha encourages us to to do this practice of being present, going deeply into our experience. He encourages us to do it with kindness and compassion, because that's a way to keep the heart and mind open. It's not just a mental exercise. It's not just a mental exercise. Those who were gathered around the Buddha... And many, many, many people ever since who have gone deeply into their experience, it changes their lives. It changes how they see themselves. It changes how we understand ourselves to be. That we have glimpses, sometimes small and sometimes greater, of what the Buddha called Nibbana or Nirvana. Mm -hmm. That place that is not conditioned. It's not a time and space experience, and the easy definition, if you're sitting here thinking oh my goodness, have I had such a thing is to look for the places where there's no greed no hatred, and no delusion and to be completely enlightened is to be completely without, always greed, hatred, and delusion that's a tall order most of us, I don't know anybody who's there actually might know a couple of people, might be fairly close but You know, it's a tall order. But most of us have had experiences when there's a moment of no greed, hatred, or delusion, or at least a moment of a whole lot less. And we begin to go, oh, that's the taste of Nibbana. That's the taste of Nibbana. And of course, the art of practice is to begin to string those moments closer and closer and closer together. When the Buddha was asked who he was after his enlightenment experience, what he finally settled on was, I am awake. He didn't say, I'm the Buddha. He didn't say, I'm you know, the son of... He didn't say any of those things. He just said, I am awake. I am awake. And then he continued on to teach about being present and paying attention. Being human is not a mistake. It's not something that you're supposed to somehow get out of, and then you're going to have your experience of nirvana, or whatever it is that you think you might find. The human experience, I think, is inherently sacred. It's the ground in which we have whatever experience we have. And so, the the teaching is to go deeply into it, not to try to get out of it. it is, As my friend Jack Cornfield used to like to say, it's an in-the-body experience. It's not an out-of-the-body experience. But, we keep thinking we know what's going on, don't we? We often think we know. And one of the most profound teachings I've had probably in all of my practice happened very early on there's a Korean Zen teacher whose book I think is entitled Only Don't Know and his response to a lot of questions was don't know Mm -hmm. and in the beginning of my practice I found this very puzzling what earth is he talking about and I'm here to tell you at this point I think it's the best teaching on the planet don't know just don't know No, because every time we think we know, we have created a story about who we are, what the situation is, what's happening next. And often then we see what we want to see, and we act out of the story, not out of what is true. And meditation is your opportunity not to know for a period of time. The great intention for your practice to sit down at any time and not know. Don't know. Don't have the foggiest notion of who you are or what you're doing. You know, and at the same time you follow the instructions for practice. It really works both ways, you know, it's time and space. And, and so you meet every experience as though it were for the first time, the breath imagine, you I've often said to people be like a space alien who doesn't look at all like a human being and all of a sudden here you are in this thing and it breathes what is a breath oh my goodness, what is this body doing what would happen if you met each breath that way, you probably would be riveted by your breath for at least for a while what if you met the ache in your back or the itch on your nose oh, what's that you know, and again went into it in, in the same way the sound of the voice the feeling of the sunshine when you're out doing walking practice the taste of a banana another of the teachings that has been so profound for me it's a long Zen story some of you have heard me tell it before but I'm going to tell it again because I do love it it's about the Emperor Wu who was a chinese emperor around the 12th century and he was a great military leader and he was also a spiritual seeker and he had some experiences that you know really got him very curious about spiritual things and he kept trying to find out to get some teachings but he was the emperor of china very powerful. And when you are a very powerful emperor, I guess in the 12th century, and probably now, it's very hard to get people to be straight with you. And so people would tell him kind of what they thought you wanted to hear. And he knew, he was smart enough to realize he wasn't getting really good, solid teaching. Kind of was going to really push him up against his own women. And one day he walked in, you could imagine a room maybe as big as this, maybe a bit bigger, and you know, it's the Chinese court and people are bustling around and, and then, you know, a lot of sort of China, most of them Chinese and one really tall apparently red-haired and blue-eyed they say, sort of barbarian who was there who really stood out from the rest of them and unbeknownst to anyone it was Bodhidharma, the great then sage but we don't, he didn't know that the emperor didn't know that and so he was very interested who is this person and so he decided to ask him it had some sense I don't even remember exactly how that part of the story goes it had some sense that he might be able to learn something from him and so he said well he said I've given a lot of money to all of these monasteries the Possum of Santa Cruz, Spirit Rock, Santa Cruz In-center. you know, lots and lots of dollars. What do? You, what about the merit? And the man looked at him and said, "No merit." Well, you know, you don't tell the emperor of China that all those donations are no merit. You know, sort of like saying to Bill Gates, you know, no merit in you know, all those <laughs> donations. Maybe, maybe Bill Gates is the emperor. Come back, I don't know. <laughs> and so then. He said, Well, the Emperor said, What about these volumes and volumes of you know suttas and spiritual teachings? And Bodhidharma said, Nothing special, vast emptiness. So that took the Emperor's breath away. I was like, Well, what this is very interesting because you know, we've never heard anything like that before. So then he took a deep breath and he looked at the man and he said, Who are you standing there? And Bodhidharma said, haven't a clue. (laughs) I I don't know. Now when I, I read that story in the middle of a really difficult solo retreat, it was the most freeing story. I'd been trying to read lots of suttas, nothing special, vast emptiness yes Yes. (laughs) and then I began to play with who are you standing there who are you sitting there I don't know try it it's the most interesting thing to experiment with not knowing for a little bit it can be a little scary and if it gets too scary you can go okay now I'm Mary Grace again you know, I do know, I know where I live, you know, all that. But then try it again, and sort of keep dipping into what is it not to know? What is it not to know? What opens up when you don't know? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah? So we're going to do an exercise. I thought about having you ask each other the question, but I think that's maybe not so good. Let's let's do groups of three again and just take a few minutes to explore where you are with where you want to know where you hold on to stories where you like to know who this person is, what they did why they did it, how come I'm that way whatever it is that you'd like to know and also begin to take a look at where you might be interested in not knowing or where you've already begun to experiment with it, because some of you may make sense the question clear no No. (laughs) the question clear it's how to uh, respond to it how to answer that's difficult you may end up talking a lot about where you're identified and where you have everybody else identified and how it's hard to let go of that does that help at all yeah just play with it Like, kind of like the quote from earlier that's funny do I have stories? and really because what you're doing is inquiry what you're doing is beginning to wonder if there's anything in this teaching that's useful for you, right? maybe not you can go home tonight and say you know that one, that thing that Mary Grace talks about all the time, that's not for me that's okay, great do it that way, but experiment with it a little and look into it and see if there's something there see if you can even see one place where you hold on to a particular story which might be causing you suffering and maybe one place where you've let go of a story and you've not known and then the person turns out to be here's one that we all know the person turns out to be nicer than you ever thought they were Right? We know those stories where you're sure you don't like that person. And then something happens and you go, oh, he's okay. Right? Yeah, we've all had that. Or it goes the other way sometimes. You have a story. This is the falling in love story, right? Mm -hmm. You fell in love with them. They were divine. Mm -hmm. They were the best thing you ever met since sliced bread. And you're going to be with them the rest of your life. And six weeks later, you know, you realize that it was a story and it would've been better not to know. Yeah? So. So, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirty, fourteen, fifteen, 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 seventeen, 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 seventeen. So, a bunch of groups of three, and one group of two, and if you'll get yourselves grouped, I'll tell you what to do next. (laughs) The group of two, well... Get to put their feet up or something for a while um, once you're in a group of three um, close your circle a little bit if you need a third person raise I see several groups of two so let's have we need another person Over. let's see one, two, three, one, two, three. Uh, which group are you being with? There's one over here. Okay. Two groups of two we've got. Okay. Okay. It's okay. Groups of two. I'll tell you what to do. So, each person is going to have five minutes to explore their relationship to their stories, to their identification, to not to knowing and not knowing. Okay? So remember that you have the floor. You can do this at any rate of speech. If you need to take a breath or sit quietly for a minute, that's okay. Though your witness or witnesses are quiet while it's your turn. There's no interaction that's going on. For the groups of two, for the two groups of two, when you get to the end of the second one, take the last five minutes and just walk around it together. Continue your conversation as a regular conversation. The groups of three, each person will have one five-minute chunk, okay? Are we ready? Do we know, do you know who each other is? You might make sure you have names. And figure out who's going to go first. We know who's going first. Okay, you can begin.